got $30,000 of all of your friends and professional contacts' money, and you go to another country where you don't know how things work, and you've promised them you're going to bring back something that you have no idea how that works either in a, in a, field, <laughs> in a field that it actively tries to hide how it works, which is like the shipping sort of thing. And then, and then, uh, and then, yeah. Um, so you've promised them and then you go over and you only have three months to do it. And then halfway through you're you've basically got 2% of the bikes you needed. You finally do everything. You pack it. Like you, you manage somehow by like everybody pitching in around you to help entire week of like not like sleeping an hour and a half and then waking up on the bench, like in the parking lot of this, this like, um, (laughs) warehouse port district to, um, finally get the door closed. Like. Or like a couple hours before your flight leaves uh, of the shipping container, get back and then realize that you have absolutely no, there's no way to guarantee that 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 is actually going to show up. That was Anders Swanson, one of the founders of the Plain Bicycle Project. I sat down with him, Leanne Perry, and Ian Frank about one week after they launched round two of the project in April 2019. I had heard about the project a little bit after the first shipment of bicycles had arrived. And I was curious to learn more as round two was launching. How exactly did they pull this off? How did they fill a shipping container of used Dutch bicycles and bring it back to Canada so that people here could enjoy a piece of everyday cycling culture? I'm Erin Riediger, and this is Plain Bicycle. I'm Leanne Perry. My name is Anders Swanson. Uh, my name is Ian Frank. My name is Torrin Swanson. My name is uh, Herbert Timmons. My name is Melissa Bruntlett. And I'm Chris Bruntlett. I'm Dan Ryle. My name is Jenny Sawatsky, and I am part of the Plain Bicycle Project. This is not a bike shop. This is a this is a culture bomb. It's a North American-wide problem that cycling is still seen as sport and not transport. Oh, I'm coming to the Netherlands because I want to introduce to import Dutch bicycles. So you've promised them, and then you go over, and you only have three months to do it, and then halfway through, you're, you've basically got 2% of the bikes you needed. I've waited and waited for this bike, and I am thrilled. I'm thrilled beyond belief. Part 3. A Plan in Motion. Those who participated in Round 1 of the Plain Bicycle Project by ordering a Dutch bicycle online knew that there was a risk. They knew that even though they paid their money, it may not result in receiving a bicycle from the Netherlands. You see, there could be issues with the bicycle supply or international shipping. Yeah, we never told them, though, like, for example, that, that there was any no risk. <laughs> well, we, yeah, they knew there was no plan because we were like, yeah, we we're going to try. We don't know, you know, right. they, like we're going to figure it out was the plan. But what they didn't know and what we didn't know was that, like, like there was a ton of risk in that plan. There's but, a chance we spent that the money got spent and knowing it's bike. Yeah, because basically because like 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 international waters is like literally well it's international waters and like if Canada doesn't want to let the shipping container in, um, they don't. There's zero things we can do about that. After getting the word out online, the Plain Bicycle Project had sold their minimum commitment of a hundred bicycles. The time had now come to implement the plan. Leanne Perry and Anders Swanson were ready to spend three months in the Netherlands, gathering used Dutch bicycles to fill a shipping container bound back for Canada. Before leaving, they asked Anders' younger brother, Torin, if he would like to join them. 
wasn't thinking I was actually going to have time to be able to take three months off. And then two days before uh, the, the flight, um, I got laid off in Vancouver. So then, actually, I think it was that night I booked my ticket and I ended up on the same plane with them on the way to Amsterdam. The team landed in Amsterdam, eager to start looking for bicycles. The bicycle traffic in Amsterdam is so dense, it's intimidating, and it's unlike anything you've seen in North America. In his memoir about moving from the U.S. to Amsterdam, titled In the City of Bikes, Pete Jordan gives the following description of his early observations of the city of Amsterdam. The cyclists appeared utterly unconcerned with the status of their rides. Student tie-clad businessmen rode unabashedly on broken-down workhorses, women's models no less. In fact, with so many well-dressed Amsterdammers riding crappy wheels, it seemed that the chicer one's threads, the shabbier and noisier his or her bike. Yet no matter the condition of their bikes, every cyclist appeared happy and satisfied. They moved with fluidity and sophistication. They stepped on and off their moving bikes with the gracefulness of ballerinas. At busy intersections, columns of bikers threaded past one another effortlessly. Such universal comfort and elegance on such basic, crappy bikes? It seemed the basis of an egalitarian society. This is the setting that Anders, Leanne, and Torin were arriving in. The city of bikes seemed the perfect place to carry out the project. We were we arrived in Amsterdam, got two bikes uh, as soon as we hit the first uh, bike shop, and then um, rode to uh, the place that we were going to stay. Uh, and there was three of us in all of our luggage too. We just we just only found two bikes that worked. Right, there's three of us. I sat on the back, holding, dragging, or holding a bunch of luggage and luggage on the front rack too. Yeah. And then Torn rode the other one. We got to. PJ's place. PJ's place, yeah. PJ Brunick's. He's a really awesome artist, actually. Mm-hmm. He was going to give us his place, and he was going into another internship in Switzerland. But he he turned out to be incredibly sick, and he couldn't go on his trip. And uh, he gave us a week to sort our sort our stuff out, and we ended up finding a place in Rotterdam. So we had to move. Our our initial plan was to get a bunch of bikes in Amsterdam, thinking that's that was the best plan. Uh, and it was going to be perfect art studio. Like we were going to go there, enough space make some more paintings. Kind of... Like he had everything that, like he even had tools. Actually, we could even fix bikes there. Yeah, and there was like two floors, so there was kind of a storage space for across bikes. from a brewery in an actual windmill. Yeah, like, and then we kind of had to find a whole new other place. We went to Rotterdam, and just kind of for the first month and a half, went to secondhand stores and uh, tried to figure out where we were going to put 100 or 200 bikes. Like, oh no, we landed in Amsterdam, now we don't have a place to live. During Anders and Leanne's previous trip to the Netherlands for their artist residency, they had made a connection with someone in Rotterdam whom they thought may be able to help with the project. I remember one of the reasons we pulled the trigger on the project was, so on, on that trip to The Hague, in one of the last weeks, we were doing some groundwork in the Netherlands trying to figure out how we would get a bike supply. For whatever reason, it's, not, it's surprising like how hard that is to actually figure out when you're not from a country, even a country that speaks large English. Anyways, and randomly, 
uh, I asked at, we were staying at a hostel for one day in the Hague. I, I asked it, I asked for the phone number for the, the, the bike depot, like how, like how to spell that or whatever, what is that in Dutch or something, you know, cause I was, we were going to, Leanne and I were going to go and, and make a trip to the place, which we did. But then you go and talk to like some kind of like low level clerk person who's like, basically is like the person who, who works at the towing place here who like is like de- dealing all day with somebody who's pissed off about their bike being taken and, and is like, what do you need? What's your name? You know, like this kind of thing. And I hear I am, hi, I'm from Canada. I'd like to, you know, get 200 bicycles. Like, and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, you're gonna have to talk to Gary or whatever. And Gary, of course, doesn't work there and she doesn't want to give them me a number. But anyways, um, so this is where we were trying to get to and figure out where this place was. But it just so happened that she's like, oh, my friend is coming here. You should talk to him. He knows he, he, he does this thing. Anyway, it turns out talked to like the boss of the ranch in uh, Amsterdam or in Rotterdam that had just decided to start out really literally had just started out doing the exact same thing. Got just like met him, met this other guy in overalls and they were working on bike, they had a big pile of bikes and we just, you know, had a beer together, immediate friends like, Oh yeah, you do this in Canada. I do this. Da 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 da. And he's like, Oh cool. And anyways, and he's like, yeah, yeah. If when you decide to do your project, you know, let me know. And I remember I had emailed them and they had not done their, they, by the time we just, we got enough money to get together, uh, like he, he gave us the lowdown of where we could maybe get bikes, but still it wasn't like a lot of, it wasn't really any solid info that he gave us at the time. He just had this big idea and then sent him an email and he said, I, you know what? We decided to not do that anymore. I'm on to another project. It's like, but I know some other people who are going to do something. I'll, whatever. If you let me know, I'll. Short story, it was from Danny that I got all the information. But so this guy, Danny, was running this give a bike project, which had replaced the project that this other guy was working on, but given us the initial info. He was kind enough to have a Skype call with me from Canada, where I was like, hey, how can we get bikes? And he's like, I'm not sure, we'll figure it out. Come to Rotterdam when you get here. Like, you know, uh, we'll show you our setup. We'll, you know, have a beer. You know, I can help you like navigate a little bit, right? And he gave me some tips and all this stuff. And so it was like, okay. And then that's when we pulled the trigger. We're like, okay, we're doing it. Because now at least we had somebody who could, we could talk to. And then, and then by the time we had all that stuff went down, we couldn't stay in Amsterdam. And it's like hard to describe why that's like a chaotic thing. But like, if you don't have a place to stay in, 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 in what is basically the richest and most densely populated expensive cities tourist cities to stay for relatively cheap for a project like the one we were doing like we're we're pretty felt screwed the team now had a potential partnership with the give a bike foundation in rotterdam so the decision was made to relocate and go about acquiring bicycles from rotterdam i asked melissa and chris bruntlett authors of building the cycling city the dutch blueprint for urban vitality about rotterdam Rotterdam is a lot different than Amsterdam, even though Amsterdam's what we think of when we think of the Netherlands, the medieval streets and the canals and all the bicycles, because Rotterdam had to be built after World War II again. And at this time, the city planning principles were much different. And it's, it's funny because, I mean, Rotterdam gets, still gets called the Netherlands car city. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, relatively speaking to the rest of the cities in the Netherlands, the, the bicycle mode share is fairly low. I think it's about 25 percent. 
but you know, I mean, to these two Canadians, it was an absolute dream. It was the first city we visited on our five week tour and we're riding, you know, two or three abreast on these beautiful white cycle tracks with our children, never having to check the bike map because there's a cycle track on virtually every street. Um, and, and I think for us, you know, the fact that Rotterdam really never gets listed in the, the, you know, the lists, these lists that come out of the world's most bike friendly cities just kind of tells you, um, that it, you're dealing with a, set, a different set of standards in the Netherlands. Yeah. And uh, they've just done it so well in, in literally 200 cities um, that that a city like Rotterdam kind of falls off the map when it, it's actually by, you know, standards uh, anywhere else in the world is actually a really great uh, city for cycling. The message from Rotterdam is probably one that's most applicable to a lot of uh, North American cities. It's basically a theme that, covers all of the work that happens uh, in the Netherlands consistently is this idea that um, streets aren't just because they've been one certain way for, you know, 50 years, a hundred years, doesn't mean that we can't change them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Rotterdam is the case study of a city that designed in the modern way, much like Winnipeg, much like Vancouver, much like Toronto, and then recognized that through some, some external causes that maybe we don't experience in North America with as a result of the oil crisis, or um, they also had a social movement demanding safer space for children, but they began to take back uh, space on the streetscape for walking and cycling. And that is actually a theme that is, it continues as we start to discover more and more cities that ha that's happening throughout the country is they recognize that they had a streetscape, it was working, but now the capacity needs to be greater for people walking and cycling. And so they are creating spaces where it's intuitive, um, it's seamless to be able to travel through their city. Basically, any street becomes almost a de facto bike street if it's not a space where you, you need to separate because of higher moving volumes. And so like that theme of like, constant change and constant recognition that they need to make the conditions better depending on how it's being used, um, I think is a really important uh, factor in what keeps people cycling here is because they generally, no matter city, what city you're in, you know that for all intents and purposes, you'll be able to get from point A to point B on a bike safely without really having to think about how to get there. You just know that the streets have been designed in a way that'll get you there safely. When Torin, Leanne, and Anders arrived in Rotterdam, they met up with the Give a Bike Foundation and began to help them with their shop. And we started helping them a little bit by setting up their bike shop a little bit better. Anders had a lot more experience. We went there and shop. we drank a significant amount of beer with them in their shop. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, let's, they, they realized the state we were in and they're like, we can help. And then we made basically a plan within a week was like, we're going to take the money we were going to invest in stuff anyways, we would um, invest in tools and leave it for them there so we didn't have to pay rent because we had a bit of a rent budget set aside in our initial budget. Instead, we're going to buy buy the tools, set it up like the good way you would set up a community bike, like a, like a bike shop because I've done a lot of bike shop setups or whatever and can do it quickly and they were still like, you know, like they had the beer fridge set out and the coach was in a good spot, but like all the, 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 all the wrenches were underneath of a saw on top of like, like it was just really inefficient kind of like badly set up like they meant well but they just weren't bike mechanics and so by the time you know another couple weeks after that then we had the whole shop set up so that three people could work on bikes at the same time the group now had a partnership and a workspace but they still needed to find a good source for secondhand bicycles 
anyway, so we relied heavily on the secondhand reprocessing kind of industry stuff, which was happening in Rotterdam. So we go, we went to the peak fine regularly and kind of maybe negotiated a little bit of a cheap deal from them to take, because they were like, wow, cool. Somebody wants to buy six bikes at a time every week. Yeah, sure. Well, we'll try it. But then that would like kind of dry up or the bikes would be too expensive. And because by the time the shipping costs, then we'd be losing money. It was like... Well, not quite the right bike either. Not even quite the right bike. It was like, it's, it started to get really shitty where it's like, okay, well, we can't make the rounds of their used bike places anymore. Or we have to go so far out of the kind of area where we live where we're going to spend like half the day getting there. Which was fine because like when you're in the Netherlands, it's like super fun to go explore. You know, you want to do that anyway. It's what I wanted to do. But we just, you know, run out of time because you only have 40 days left. We need 200 bikes. If each one was like that, we couldn't. Through that time, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get any bikes from the Fietzpunt. Um, it's basically their, their bike depot, I guess, I believe that's what that translates to. And it's a city-run service that goes and picks up um, bikes that are stored in their parking garages, um, at the train stations, or on the city streets that have been parked for too long. And then they auction them off in, in droves, in big quantities of, of bikes. So the group knew that there were large bicycle auctions, but they just didn't really know how to gain access to them. So how do these bikes end up away from their owners in the first place? Jenny Swatsky and Dan Ryle of the Plain Bicycle Project explain. Yeah, so I think uh, exactly that. People park them illegally around a canal, um, and they might get taken away in a matter of hours because they, uh, yeah, they're parked illegally, or... Um, they get stolen and abandoned and taken away, uh, or they're left at maybe a train station for an extended period of time in which... Um, 28 days. 28 days, and after that they get taken, and you have, I think, two weeks to claim your bike after that. But I, th- I think a lot of people might abandon their bikes for various reasons. Some might be that they've just they genuinely lost it because it looks like all the other ones. <laughs> in the sea of bikes, but maybe some other reasons are they had to leave the country or something like that, I'm sure. Generally, I think it's just a symptom of having more bikes than people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you go to a... Tra- yeah, yeah. like Jenny said, so many times you hear about someone that's gone to the train station, parked their bike, and you hear about them taking pictures of where they've placed their bike because there's thousands and they need to find it again. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just forget and it's impossible to find, and then mm-hmm. 28 days go by, the city takes it, and then, yeah, sure, you could go there and try to pick it up. Some people just don't because they're Oma feeds, and you just get another one from your grandma. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, but, yeah, so these are all the bikes, essentially, that haven't been reclaimed by their original owners um, and then have fallen into an auction um, and just, I guess, recycled, we can just say, yeah. um, into the bike population. <laughs> Eventually, through a series of contacts, the group was able to locate a bicycle auction that they could attend. Going through the, the um, getting contacts through the, the bike shops, um, they led us to um, to the Fietzpunt in Utrecht. Um, but that, like I said at the start, was about two months in. If we had known we were going to get the auction, we could have relaxed for the three months. But the reality was we had somebody's phone number who didn't speak really English who didn't really like to answer emails and um like danny was like yeah well i'm gonna try and get you and so it was another guy who was trying to connect us with him and like every week i'd be like danny did you hear from uh, martin he's like oh 
No, not yet. Do you mind sending him another email? Like, like maybe the word urgent in there? Like, you know, and he's like, oh, okay, okay, I guess I could. He's like, yeah, he'll, he'll get back, but I just don't know what he, you know, it's like, okay, God. You know, the clock's ticking. And eventually, uh, like, miracle. He's like, yeah, there's an auction on whatever, Thursday. You got to come to Utrecht. So we went to Utrecht and looked at it. And, yeah. We got a contact to go and check out some auction bikes. So we took the train to, to Utrecht. The guy was just so nice in person and and let us kind of go in and, and see the bikes before the auction. It was just basically a huge auction house. So they had this massive warehouse of, of lots of like, I think it was 50 to 100 to 200 bikes that you had to purchase at once. As you can imagine, um, that doesn't take very long to, to get 100 bikes if you can buy them at, at, at 100 at a time in such a big lot. From the perspective of someone who's only experienced bike shopping in North America, it's hard to describe what these feats devos are like. So like in the Netherlands, a bike shop or, or this kind of place is more like, like, it's not like here. Like here it's like young kids, fresh faced, like, hey, like eager or like hipstery people, right? But there it's more like, you're, it's like more like the Main Street auto body and the dump. <laughs> and so it's the same kind of guys work there like and it's it is guys like big guys with like overalls and they're in a bad mood smoking in the back you know and there's then the coffee machine is all crusty like it's that kind of <laughs> environment like the bike shop is like a run-of-the-mill ugh, get in here's your shit and get out of my face i'm busy you know like this kind of place anyways and so the 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 the, the feed steeple was like that too but but i don't know why but like like, maybe because we were there so many times, but, like, Martin kind of, I think, took a liking to us, or at least tolerates. And he's, his son is, um, his, his son's quite nice. Um, and he, because we went there quite a few times after that. So, so we did this, and then he, then he said, look, you guys paid way too much for the bikes, like, at auction. Like, because I was like, do you have any more bikes? We have to bring them back to Canada, and we have two weeks left. We can't wait for the next auction, this kind of thing. And he's like, come to see me on Come to see me, fine. You know, talk to my son. You know, this kind of thing. And then he's like, and his son is like, oh yeah, you, oh, that's a project? Nice, well, let's see, you know. As the group was traveling, they were posting pictures on social media. And they quickly found that the demand for bicycles grew from their initial wait list and 100 people who committed to buy. We were initially going to do a 20-foot container. And then at the very last minute, we got access to this auction. We were able to buy like another 80 bikes basically um just like that without any say so and the way the shipping works like a, a 20 foot is $5,500 and then a, a 40 foot is $7,000 so the economy of scale was there. Ian Frank elaborates on the extra risk associated with increasing the size of the shipping container. So Winnipeg Trails um sort of put up some of our own money um, to take that extra 20 feet of, of shipping container. And so that's partly why it was so nerve-wracking is we're a not-for-profit that doesn't have a lot of money. So the you know three or $4,000 that we were putting on the line, hoping that it was going to work out, um, if we lost that money, it could have had some pretty real implications for us. So it was, um, you know... In hindsight, it worked out, so it's okay. I, I don't know if it was necessarily the best decision, but it worked, so it's okay. <laughs> the next step was packing the shipping container that was to be sent back to Canada. 
but the day that we were basically um, in this warehouse, it was becoming spring, kind of bringing all the bikes outside because it was getting nice and we were, we were um, taking all the handlebars off and all the um, and all the, uh, the pedals and everything to fit them sideways. We knew that was the case, but we didn't know necessarily like what kind of what position in a shipping container they should sit. Um, and then we were having some beers and across the fence on the other side at the other warehouse, um, we just saw these guys kind of unloading uh, a shipping container. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. And so we went over, had some beers with them, um, walked around the fence and then went over there. And then they started telling us like, oh yeah, we ship bikes all the time. Like, oh yeah. So um, how many bikes do you usually fit in a shipping container? <laughs> and he's like, um, well, around 400. And we're like, oh. And we're like, in like a like 53 foot container, like, like, what's the max size you guys can ship? He's like, no, 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 in a 40 foot container. We're like, oh, really? Wow. Okay. Um, so we're just like kind of confused because like doing our math and doing like the first couple rows, we were just like, we're only going to fit like 150, I think. And we had, uh, I think it was close to 207 bikes at that point. And then, um, so yeah, so they said 400. So that kind of gave us like, okay, well, maybe our math's off a little bit. Maybe we can. We can position a bit better. So I think we did a couple, definitely a couple tries, um, pulling all the bikes back out, trying them a different way. But the way they kind of told us was that you lay them down um, flat and then you stack them really high. And also Herbert, I think, really bought into the project when he was here last time because he got to, so he also, and he's, he's part of the team, sure, but he's a little bit busy, but like we should put him on the team too, just because mm-hmm. of the amount of bikes that he fixed, like to get us into that shipping container and that mad dash, watching him fix bikes, like having, he's a sort of a 45, 50, 55, I don't know, year old kind of gentleman. Like he's like clearly off the side of the road, like fixed his bike, like so many times, like, and he, he would pick up the bikes and we'd be delicately like checking them and doing stuff. He'd put his foot on the axle and reef on the handlebars and look at it. It looks about right. Okay, good. Throw it in the car. Does it go? Yep. Next one. Like he's like, and he's an engineer too. So it's like, oh, okay. The engineer's doing that. Okay. We're, we're all good then. We can do whatever. I spoke to Herbert Tiemens about his experience. For me, it was just the simple things like removing the pedals and uh, removing all the bike racks uh, in, fr- in the front that are really uh, taking up a lot of space if you want to pack them in a container. Just bend the steer that uh, it, 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 it is much smaller and then attach it. So it was just a simple work uh, to, to, to prepare the bicycles and let uh, just see if... if there are no loose parts if the if the chain will run those things but it was yeah the, the simple work that I, I i wanted to do and it's it's always nice also to work with your hands so in the end of the day when you have a row of 200 bicycles outdoors that are ready to ship that's really satisfying also yeah one of the biggest challenges for the group was figuring out the logistics of international shipping yeah, but time. still, it is true. They do actively sort of keep things from you, like, and then when you try and look up all the information, it's like a, a it's a, like it's a, a bit of a black box, huge stack of legalese that you have to get through yeah. in order to understand what it is that they're talking about, and then and even to try and like ask questions, like, well, you give us all the information, and then we'll give you like a quote, and it's not even just like, well, what does this cost, and this cost, and this cost, like, well, you give us what you want, and we'll tell you what that might cost and what how long it might take. 
but uh, we're not commit, committing to anything. And like as we're putting the paperwork together, we needed to. We, we realized we needed an organization to receive the bikes. We like we didn't realize we couldn't just ship a container to somebody. Like, and I still don't understand why you can't do that. Like, how does somebody move? Like, mm-hmm. anyways, turns out you can't. So there's whole rules around that. It has to be to an organization. And at that time, we were just starting up Winnipeg Trails as a. We had to, ha- had to have a business number. We had to have a business number. Yeah. We were, it just happened to be around the same time that it was, yeah, we were, we were incorporating Winnipeg Trails as a separate organization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Ian was in already, Winnipeg. He was in Winnipeg. And it was like, guess what? <laughs> Do you want to go in the bike business? <laughs> Basically. You talked a little bit last time about when you became, you were signing authority in the bank account and you had to, um, figure out how to get money internationally to ship. Can you speak to that experience a little bit? Yeah. So that was a pretty interesting. So, um, I think we did, we, we learned a lot of lessons after the first round, but especially in the first round, we kind of, um, you know, they kind of collected bikes as they collected bikes. And then it kind of came time. We realized that we had to go through a broker to get a shipping container and all these pieces. And so that involved wiring, um, know a large sum of money to a numbered account a numbered european account so i went into um our uh, branch of the similar credit union which is who we use our our, we use for our banking and i think it was me a manager and and one of the tellers one of the someone else working there that kind of deciphered using the documentation that the broker had sent uh and a bit of sort of faith that the number we were sending all this money to was the right number. Uh, so it was it was pretty nerve-wracking until we got confirmation from the broker that uh, the money did arrive and I didn't just send it to someone randomly because uh, the wiring, wiring money is not like a, an e-transfer where they have password and there's some sort of backstop that uh, you don't just send it to someone else. If I send it to the wrong account, it would just go into the wrong account. <laughs> so that was a little nerve-wracking, yeah. And can you share what the amount was that you had to... I don't remember exactly, but I think it was, it was like thousands of euros. The wire transfer went through. So now all they had to do was wait and see if the shipment would arrive safely in Canada. Like roll the dice, like basically what happened, we sent it and then it, it, it got to the port of Montreal and um, and we got an email out of the blue. It's Well, email out of the blue, so your, your, your container's been pulled over for inspection basically you know like if you go through the border same right. thing like but for this one like it's like okay yeah it's like basically most shipping containers are like like you know a pallet like with like shrink wrap and like stamps and you know coming from like a factory to like walmart right and they're like right. yeah this one is like upside down the, a company that was incorporated like four days before the shipping <laughs> container left yes yeah, exactly. uh and you're wondering why you were... Yeah, no, <laughs> no idea why. And, and so one of the big concerns with that is that, like, um, I think it's like agricultural import things, is that, like, if there's dirt, they can refuse it. Oh, okay. And these are all used bikes. So yeah, they asked us, is there any dirt on the bikes? Like, an email that says, is there dirt on the bikes? And we're like... At no point did they ever say anything about dirt. Like, Before you reach back. Yeah, like, we want to hit him with a broom or something. Yeah. Like, we're yeah. like, fuck. Like, there. There's, well, like, these came out of the canal, probably. Yeah. Like, there's definitely yeah. dirt on them. And, uh, anyways, but, yeah, um, so they inspected it and it was fine. 
but but oh, and also the wording in the email was um, um, oh, because I asked, well, what happens if they don't want to? Like we didn't know about this. What? Why? You know how? And they said, well, what happens? Well, um, you have three options that either bury it sixty feet underground. They say sixty, like like they have. They're, like it's bury like, all the bikes. It's like they're or being intentionally the mean about it. It's yeah. probably only twenty feet, but they're like sixty feet and like <laughs> sixty feet, or we burn it, or we ship it back at your expense. So it was like, what would you like to choose? We were like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Those all seem like pretty bad options. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it turns out like, I don't know what they're like. It's all legal and complicated, but like, it turned mm-hmm. out that, you know, it was fine. It worked. Yeah, they were like, go ahead. And this time, we saw we really. Finally, the Plain Bicycle Project members could breathe. The container was on its way from Montreal to Winnipeg. And despite all the challenges the project faced, it would become a reality. More than 100 people in Winnipeg were about to receive a Dutch bike. And in turn, we would be able to see if delivering people with the tool for everyday transportation could influence a cultural shift in the way people move around the prairie city. Next time on Plain Bicycle. You know, like the three of us in Winnipeg are trying to strategize what kind of mm-hmm. uh, a shipping container this would look right. like this time. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden Dan's like, I'm going to go to the Utrecht and just see if it'll work out. And then the day he arrives, he's like, okay, it's happening. And we're like, yeah. okay, we've got a week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, no. We should say that the bikes have not, last time the bikes were fixed in the Netherlands, this time we were just kind of hucking the bikes into the shipping container and they'll be fixed upon getting to Canada. Thank you for listening to Plain Bicycle. Plain Bicycle is an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast by myself, Erin Riediger. You can follow me on Twitter, at Erin Riediger. Follow at Plain Bicycle Podcast on Instagram for visuals to accompany this episode. Visit the Plain Bicycle Project on Twitter, at Plain Bicycle, Instagram, at Plain.Bicycle, or their website, PlainBicycle.org. Please spread the word by subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast. A key resource for this podcast was Building the Cycling City, the Dutch Blueprint for Urban Vitality by Melissa and Chris Brentlett. Please visit the episode post on Instagram for additional resources and thank yous. Here I am. Hi, I'm from Canada. I'd like to, you know, get 200 bicycles. Like, and they're like, what the?